The following is a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified, the guests on the program are employees of or otherwise represent the advertiser. The opinions expressed therein are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of 900 CHML. We are planning your financial future. I'm Scott Thompson. Don Fox is here, plus Philip Peterson, Chief Investment Strategist for Investors Group. And of course, you can find out more at donfox.net. You can call them at IG Private Wealth Management at 905-972-7420. Good afternoon, sorry, good morning, gentlemen. Good to see you all. Hope you're doing well today. Yeah, doing great. Thanks, Scott. Good to see you. And, yeah, likewise. Yeah. Thank you for having me. Some of the news uh, this week, uh, inflation down to its lowest rate in a long time at 4.3%. Yet on the other hand, uh, gas going up 68 cents a liter uh, over the week. What are your thoughts? How do you process this all? It's always a little confusing. It's great to see you know, all these interest rate hikes we've been having for the last, so call it a year now, um, are, are taking place. But that one that everybody keeps is that stickling point. It would be that the grocery bill. And I kind of joked the other day, it's almost like you need to, it's like they have a cover charge to get into the grocery store these days. Because you got to have enough money just to get in. Um, Groceries are still up 9.7% year over year um, after March, that is, uh, compared to 11.4% in January. But that's the one that hits everybody. That's, it doesn't matter who you are. Everybody has to eat. And so that one's right up there. Um, it is at least it's heading the right direction, but uh, not quite sure why that one is per se. Philip, you might have some ideas on why groceries are kind of a laggard. Yeah, I, you know, when you look at the inflationary environment, uh, Scott, to what you mentioned, you know, gas prices are, are ticking up a little bit. That has to do with oil prices up a little bit more than where we were, you know, say a month or a couple months ago. Uh, we can thank OPEC for that one. On the grocery store uh, or the groceries, it's interesting. We have seen certain segments of uh yeah groceries go up certain segments you know we've earlier in the year was eggs you know we last year it was corn and wheat um but there's also an element i think we have to be realistic here about margin expansion at the grocery stores themselves meaning their profits are increasing and we saw this with the results of the grocery stores last quarter and i expect to see it again it's not just passing on inflation it's passing on inflation and we can argue taking advantage of the environment and re-expansion um, of their margins from when they were squeezed over, say, the last 10 years. So that's you know, in part what has been driving this food inflation is that you know, grocery store profits are up. Yeah, and, and we actually mentioned this uh, a show or two ago, Scott, where you know if, if groceries go up by 10% and their margins don't go down, they mm-hmm. basically are taking advantage of that inflationary pressures and getting higher profits. And so, yeah, they, you know, there's, I know they said, okay, we're not going to, they got some deals and so forth. But at the end of the day, look at the profits, look how well they're yeah. doing. And, yeah. you know, the rhetoric that they may say, we're not, it's not us, it's not us. Well, how come you got record profits? So and he, you, know, and you he- can't have it both ways. And as well, uh, this week, the announcement that Galen Weston stood, uh, standing down as president, going to remain on the board and still actively involved. But I think getting out of that spotlight and perhaps taking the target off his chest. Yeah, out of the crosshairs a bit, perhaps. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a, it's a, pain, a painful spot. But again, who are they in business for? Mm-hmm. They're in business for the shareholders. Yeah. And I would suggest that's all companies. So when you say, okay, the bank's profits are record profits, again, who, who owns the banks? It's the shareholders. And, and those are people that have 
investments in their RSPs, in their pension plans. Joku Public probably has more money in the banks than anybody, so it's actually helping the pension funds. The grocery stores, maybe not as much. Okay, those ones hurt a lot more. So anyway, but uh, let's just backtrack a little bit. It's uh, quarter first quarter of 23 is over here, Philip. And, you know, what were the winners and losers of uh, of last in the first quarter? Well, it's very interesting. I think when you go look back at the first quarter, if you only focused on the headlines, you would perhaps take away that it was a volatile quarter, probably down, probably disappointing, yet that wasn't the reality. The reality was that uh, we finished off quite strongly in the U.S., finished off strongly internationally in Canada, both on the equity side as well as the fixed income side. So uh, we have been pleasantly surprised by the strength in equities all around the world for the first quarter, uh, despite some of the economic headwinds. Um, there, I, I would say what has driven it perhaps has been the elimination of a lot of the uncertainties. And so when you get rid of a lot of the uncertainties in the marketplace, then you can focus on some of the fundamentals. And we see that priced into various equity markets around the world. So just for example, the S&P 500, the benchmark for US stocks was up 7% at the end of, of March. The TSX was up about, I think it was about three and a half percent. Europe was up closer to 8% in Canadian dollar terms. So strong markets reflecting... Uh, a decent investment environment. And that's not to say it's going to continue going forward, but it's been a nice surprise. And particularly, I'll say again, on the bond side, where we had the way we describe it, the 100-year flood last mm. year for bonds when interest rates went from zero to 4.5% for the overnight rate for the Bank of Canada and similarly in the United States, bonds are offering an attractive coupon. And in the first quarter, we actually saw yields come down a little bit that has delivered a return in the range of three to four percent. So overall, a great quarter, a really good quarter, Don. <laughs> yeah, you know, it's interesting. Um, the headlines are what people hear and see, and they don't actually probably follow the indexes as closely because headlines grab attention. And I've had clients say, okay, Don, should I open this month's quarter up or not? It doesn't sound like it's been another, it hasn't been that good, has it? I said, no, it's been outstanding, actually. Um, from October of last year till now, you've seen a, a good rebound. I wouldn't say it's all the way back. Um, we still have a little ways to go after the negative year in 22, but we've certainly cut most of those losses by now. And it's great to see. Now, as a chief investment strategist, um, I love what you do, and we, we call it in, at IG, in tilting portfolios. And basically what that means for the listeners out there, it's taking a look at all the different asset classes and you either underweight or overweight those asset classes. Um, example, um, let's say Canadian is normally, if you're just neutral, Canadian equities was 25%. You'd say, okay, I may overweight it. I might make it to 30% and underweight US would be an example and bring that say to, from 25 to 20. So in a hypothetical um, portfolio of fixed income at 25% starting January 1st of this year, Canadian equities at 25%, US equities at 25%, Europe at 20 and emerging markets at five. So that adds up to your 100% portfolio. If that's the neutral portfolio, what did you do January 1st of this year? Well, we would have been positioned, uh, and this has been a position over the last, call it nine months for us, 
uh, underweight U.S. So mm-hmm. if we're if the bench if the the target is twenty five percent, we're below that. Um, How much below? Are, well, if we're looking at like a seventy five percent equity portfolio, twenty five percent fixed income, we would be five to seven percent underweight U.S. Okay. at this point. Um, and the the offset then would be overweight Canada, overweight Europe, overweight emerging markets, overweight international, and modestly overweight fixed income. So just starting to add back into fixed income, taking it from an underweight where we were last year to a slight overweight. Um, and so it's all been, I would say, at the expense of the U.S. equity position. Right. And that's because, in our view, we see the U.S. equity market facing the most headwinds in terms of valuation that we think is a little higher than we'd like it. Earnings growth, that's going to be a little bit weaker than than we think. Um, uh, and a currency that we think is going to work against Canadian investors. Yeah, no, it's it's interesting you mentioned currency. You took the, <laughs> I was just on the tip of my tongue here, at a 74 cent dollar. And let's say the normal Canadian dollar versus the U.S. is at around 78 cents on average over the years, maybe as high as 80. That seems to be kind of the, the neutral zone. I love it when it hits par, of course, when you're vacationing. But for those people that you know own companies here in the, in Canada and export to the U.S., this has been great for them. You know, they you know it, it's a bit of a, a bit of a boon because it's cheap for U.S. to come here and buy our products. Um, so that's probably helped our economy because being a, a lot smaller than the U.S., we they they'll look at the difference in exchange and say, hey, what a great deal. So. That can't go on forever. It generally seems seems to creep back up. You know, if for the listeners, how would you explain how currency risk is is brought into your decision making? It's a great question, Don. And I, I th- think it starts with how do we develop our view on currency for the coming twelve months, twelve to eighteen months, and and over the long term, we've seen the Canadian dollar being moved vis-a-vis the U.S. dollar by really two forces. One is oil prices. When oil prices go up, that's good for the Canadian dollar. Uh, the other one is the difference in interest rates between Canada and the United States. And when uh, can- Canadian interest rates are higher than they are in the United States, our dollar goes up and, and vice versa. What we've seen recently to help take the Canadian dollar higher from 72 cents to about 74 and a half where we are today is that oil prices are up a little bit, right? OPEC is going to cut production. That's going to help drive oil prices higher. And the there's less, um, I would say, expectations that the Federal Reserve is going to raise rates much further than where we are today. So we put the the fair value for the Canadian dollar somewhere between 74 to 76 cents. Now, when we do this at the start of the year, we remember we were closer to 72 cents at the beginning mm-hmm. of the year. And we say, okay, if there's upside to the Canadian dollar of potentially 5%, that means that U.S. equities have to outperform by that amount and then deliver a commensurate return to what we would get Canada or elsewhere in the world. We didn't think that. We thought that, you know, there's going to be headwinds to US equity returns plus the currency. So let's protect ourselves against that and start trimming that US equity weight. And then you go to the other side of the world. We think, hey, the euro is cheap. It can actually move up in value. That's good for Canadian investors in European stocks. You want to have a little bit more exposure to that. So look at that first quarter. How would you grade yourself there, Philip? You made these tilts. How did it turn out? Yeah, I would say, you know, uh, I'll, I'll, in general, positive. 
Yeah, we've okay. seen, yes, we've seen positive contribution from the tilts. Um, they worked in our favor. I would say the the underweight to the US, though, you know, we we are perhaps I'll throw the 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 typical caveat early on this one because of the strength <laughs> that we've seen in the US equity market, but it didn't hurt us because that was offset by even stronger markets in Europe and the emerging markets. So, you know, in on balance, uh, I think we're in we're still in the right position going forward. Um, because we do anticipate a little bit more volatility towards the end of the year. So, you know, uh, if we look at the gradual tilts over the last nine months, um, since I've been implementing them in, in uh, our iProfile portfolios, they've been consistently adding value. And, and, and one way to add value isn't simply returns either. It's adding a safety net or, or less volatility. Well, even if you got the exact same returns with less volatility, most clients would really appreciate that. Exactly. And that's what we're trying to do. You're trying to, you know, we're trying to get to the same destination with the least amount of turbulence. Perfect. We are, we are planning your financial future. I'm Scott Thompson. Don Fox is here from Fox Group Private Wealth Management, along with Philip Peterson, IG's chief investment strategist. You can find out more at donfox.net. You can call them at IG Private Wealth Management at 905-972-7420. A quick break here. We're coming right back. You are listening to a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified, the guests on the program are employees of or otherwise represent the advertiser. The opinions expressed therein are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of 900 CHML. We are planning your financial future. I'm Scott Thompson. Don Fox is here from Fox Group Private Wealth Management, as well as Philip Peterson, Chief Investment Strategist for Investors Group. You can find out more at donfox.net. You can call them at IG Private Wealth Management at 905-972-7420. We're talking about the quarter in review and breaking it all down. Yes, and it's, it's again, positive quarter for those listeners. It's, uh, it's great to have good news because, uh, you know, after a year of, in a, in a kind of a winter, funny, it's like springtime and, hey, returns are coming too and things are growing. So it's good to have. Now, it's kind of interesting, though, how do you, create your portfolio or your tilts, if you will, what kind of data do you use to say, okay, or how many data points for that matter, say, okay, this is what we're doing and this is why, because there's so much data out there. How do you formulate your your opinions, Philip? Well, it, that's a good question. I, I suppose it. Uh, I have to ask, how much time do we have um, <laughs> to explain it? But uh, I'll, I'll put it in really simplistic terms. What we start to do is we look at where we are in terms of the economic cycle and the business cycle, which would include earnings cycle. Um, and that really uh, gives us some historical markers or historical precedents in terms of are we in an accelerating growth environment or decelerating growth environment, right? Is inflation getting stronger or weaker? And historically, you can see how asset classes perform and, and they are significantly different in different environments. And so that's our starting point uh, where we say, okay, so currently, Don, we are seeing growth slowdown and inflation slowdown, right? So that would put us in, in one quadrant of our matrix. And we know in that environment that in general, equity returns tend to be weaker and you want to be a little bit more defensive, uh, because that's consistent with an economic slowdown and potentially recession. And defensive, and then, if you can just uh, describe sir, exactly what you mean by that. Right. So defensive is it's mitigating uh, the downside risks. That's owning bonds, 
it's owning um, uh, safer areas within the stock market, uh, cheaper areas within the stock market, so more value than growth and, and so on. Gotcha. Um, and, and so that takes us to kind of the next step, which is we look at the relative opportunity set cross asset. So, you know, how does the U.S. equity market look relative to the Canadian equity market? You know, and so normally these markets trade in similar patterns to each other. Um, and usually they're valued at, at similar levels, but you can get things out of whack. Right. You know, uh, uh, the market does play favorites and and sometimes goes too far. So when we look at that, it tells us, OK, in this environment, for example, Canada, the Canadian stock market is significantly cheaper than where it normally is relative to the U.S. And earnings growth looks actually stronger than what we see in the U.S. So that would then suggest, OK, we want to trim our U.S. equity weight, add to Canada. But coming back to where we are in the economic cycle, being a little bit more defensive, hey, we probably want to trim back our U.S. equity or equities in general to add to bonds that will protect us on the downside. And so once once I do that, and, and then I'll just kind of wrap it up here, we ask ourselves, if we're wrong, what does the environment look like to the upside? So for example, let's say things are actually better than we think, right? What does that realistically look like? Uh, and then if we're wrong to the downside, if things actually got worse, then what does that look like? And you assign probabilities to it. And then that tells you how you should be positioned. So we're really trying to put ourselves in a position that, you know, let's mitigate that downside risk in case there, that downside scenario plays through, but also put ourselves in a position to capitalize on that upside risk and try and you know play that middle ground. All, all what keeps going through my mind when you're saying all this, Philip, is Everybody, don't try this at home. <laughs> That's you know what that, yeah. And this is this is the the culmination of fifteen years of work. Yes, uh, to put all this together. Uh, I, I like to use a phrase like my colleague uh, years ago used to say, and and sometimes it might make sense in an odd way, but he's like, you know, we're not trying to throw that hail mary pass down the field. We want to keep hitting singles and doubles and keep the ball in right in the middle of the fairway. Yeah, and that's a great way to look at it and not trying to hit the home runs. And so, you know what? It's kind of interesting. Warren Buffett in his latest newsletter said, you know what? This, the efficient market only exists theoretically in textbooks. And when you said the market plays favorites, that's basically the same idea. It's not perfectly aligned. There's, there's opportunities. And you're seeing this. There's an opportunity to say, a safer opportunity to get the same kind of return or greater than currently being in the U S with the risks of currency and their PE ratios ex being a little bit more expensive. So I think these, I, are, I, these are the playing favorites. I think Philip should make a walk on appearance in one of those quest trade commercials and just start quizzing the brothers and see what they have to say about <laughs> all of this. Exactly. Well, we like to think it's easy, but it's not. Anyone can buy a stock and you, and they can buy a stock and that stock goes up. And then all of a sudden you have like this intelligence fallacy that, look, I must be right because my stock went up. But, you know, look, it's more luck than anything else. You really have to understand all the nuances of the market if you want to be successful over time uh, and avoid the blow ups. And, and it's not easy. It does take a lot of work and a lot of understanding. It's kind of interesting, though, when I look at, say, our iProfile discretionary, which allows you to make these tilts and, and overweight certain areas over and underweight other areas. 
Now, another piece of that iProfile discretionary is run by BlackRock. And they have their active allocation sliver, and it's about 20% generally of the overall portfolio. Do you ever take a look at what they're doing versus what you're doing? Uh, sometimes I do, but I, I try not to, well, I, I don't let it influence me um, because our approaches are very different. So BlackRock will, it's fantastic that we're partnering with them. Look, they're the largest asset manager in the world. And what I, they do, I think they do very well. They're looking at their active allocation and making decisions and changes daily. And that's the or weekly, and that's their expertise. And they're so they're finding discrepancies with cross asset uh, uh, relationships and taking advantage of it. That is not my expertise. My expertise is, you know, looking at things um, and and seeing them play out over the course of twelve to eighteen months. Um, so if I tried to do what they did, I would fail because I, I just that's not where I focused my energy over the last fifteen years to find you know longer term opportunities. Um, and likewise, I would say if they try to do my approach, they could, they might fail. So I think it's a good complement with what they're doing and what I'm doing um, to come together with the objective of you know, incrementally adding performance to the portfolios, to the downside and to the upside over time. Yeah, and that's great. It's basically are doing the same type of work, totally different ways. It, that's exactly it. And uh, and it's kind of interesting. I happen to have their March. 30th description of what they're doing right now. And they, they come out monthly. Like you said, theirs is far more active. Yours is more of a quarterly. Let's see where we go for the next quarter. Theirs is, as you said, daily or weekly. Interesting enough, though, you seem, you both have the same theme on the U.S. U.S. was underweighted and it was about negative 8%. And they've actually increased their U.S. a little bit. It's now about minus 4%. Canada is their greatest overweight at about 7%. So you're both on that same page there, which is interesting. And also on the fixed income part, you're actually a little bit more um, bullish, if you will, or positive on the fixed income. They were negative 7%. They're now negative 5%. So they they were very early in getting, say, bonds are awful. And they said this well over a year ago and figuring there's so much risk in bonds. But at the end of the day, you both have the same objective. Get as high, increase returns, take less risk. And I don't know a client that doesn't want that. <laughs> okay. So, because that's all everybody says, oh, the perfect utopia. I just want high returns with no risk, Don. Simple. So, <laughs> now talking about high returns with no risk, there's a lot of topics, a lot of discussions right now in cash. Why not just leave money in cash? It's getting me over 4% and there's no risk. What do you have to say about that? Well, first, I would say there is risk. Right. And, and you, we often think that risk is only to the downside, but risk is to the upside as well. You know, so, so realistically, risk could be missed opportunity. And I don't utilize cash in my asset allocation. Um, it's, it's one of the things I learned early on in that if I didn't like equities or I wanted to, to scale back the risk of equities, the better place to be is in bonds. Now, anyone would look at, what happened in 2022 and saying, well, that didn't work for you. It's like, no, you're absolutely right. That was the one in a hundred year flood again. Um, and in fact, it was the volatility in bonds that triggered the volatility in the equity markets. Uh, but in general, if you are bearish or negative on equities, then the better place to be is bonds because what you would expect is that 
equities would respond to some type of economic uh, weakness. And in that economic weakness, the Bank of Canada or Federal Reserve would cut interest rates, which is beneficial for bonds. So, and and I just look at what has happened now. The the majority of the cash came in in the fourth quarter of last year when investors were were selling at seemingly the bottom of the market, October seventeenth, around give or take, you know, the weeks around there. Moving to cash, moving to being attracted by what seemed as as high uh, interest rates. And I would argue they were, you know, four, four and a half percent. Yeah, it's not bad. Uh, but guess what? The equity market and the bond market has almost doubled that since October. Right. So that's the missed opportunity. So yes, you were safe in, in buying uh, an investment or cash that generated 4% over a year, but that could have been achieved you know, in a quarter. And the 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 decision to go to cash historically has been the wrong one for the majority of investors, they they tend to go to cash at the bottom of the market and they tend to invest when the market fully recovers. So they miss that upside. They've missed the upside that's been double digits for equities since that low uh, in October for something that is seemingly safe, but has created a lot of risk in their portfolios. Is human behavior, this whole idea of, of selling when it's down and buying when it's high, and this is uh, this study has been done by Dalbar and many others. And we've talked about this on the show. Is that one of your many data points you look at and say, "Ooh, most people are wrong. Now it must be a good time to get in." It actually is, and and it's it's a, almost like a sentiment indicator, right? And there are many sentiment indicators out there. Meaning, if people feel strongly about investing in stocks or or weaker uh, or less strongly about it, and so I do track um, net sales or flows, or or just think about it. Are investors putting money into the market or taking the money out of the market? And when we see you know, extremes, when investors are uh, pulling money out of the market at extreme levels, that historically has coincided with bottoms right. of equity markets. And and we saw one of those, again, September, October last year. Yeah, and it's kind of interesting. Carl Richards does this one chart I have in my office here, and it's just uh, – it just shows the ups and downs, and and it's it says it all really because you you have the investor riding the roller coaster basically, and it's saying buy high, and then watches them sell sell low, re- and then it keeps going up again, repeat until broke. Yeah, that's <laughs> and we've uh, seen the same thing. We saw it in in two thousand eight, two thousand nine. We saw it in December two thousand eighteen. We saw it in March of two thousand and twenty. That that's just the the natural inclination of the investor that they need to fight if they want to be successful. And I've often said, it's not, we're not wired to make money. We're wired to hunt, I don't know, Toronto Rexes or mammograms and, and run. If a lion comes, it's fear and greed in the markets. And it's the worst thing. The emotions get in the way. In fact, it's been proven that males are worse at this than females. And they called it the testosterone effect where when the markets, they want to feel like they are in control. They have to move around more to make money. And just not letting the managers do their job is actually doing something. And we have to remind clients that this is part of the process. You've got it here for the long run. Long run wasn't six months. It's a long-term investment. And the other thing I find often, and you mentioned it, it's you know 4%, for example, for cash. What they, aren't, they didn't know is they could have made 8% had they left it invested. And the opportunity cost of the 4%. So when we see, often we've seen clients and they're pretty excited. You know what? 
they've had their not let their their whole life savings in front of them and they show us this portfolio of a million dollars what they don't know is it should have been two million because of the compounding effect of money and it's it takes a long time but mistakes cost a lot of money and i look back at my very first cars of 1972 volkswagen beetle i know i'm aging myself but I couldn't do much damage to it. It was given to me by my parents. I could put the Bondo on. I can do whatever. I did not want to look after my, my new car when I finally bought a, a new car because I can actually mess it up a lot more. And I couldn't. The cost was way too great on the downside by getting involved in that. So now the other kind of interesting topic these days, and it's I think there's a whole area on the dark web. I don't even know what the dark web is, but. I'm assuming it's a lot of uh, fake news, if you will. Um, and the whole idea of this gold is where you got to put your money. The world's basically going hell in a handbasket. U.S. dollar is doomed. Um, get out while you can. How does gold play a role? Does it, first of all, does it play a role in any of your thinking? And what you know, what, why has it even got value? It's just uh, it's jewelry, as far as I'm concerned. Well, you know, it, it can it's it doesn't have a lot of practical applications. So you're right, jewelry. Um, we can we can turn it into tiny electronics, uh, but largely I view gold as a currency, and that's because it's held as a currency by central banks around the world: Federal Reserve, European, uh, uh, European Central Bank, the Swiss National Bank, and so on. So if you val if you look at it as a form of currency, then sometimes that currency can be undervalued or overvalued. Um, currently right now, I think gold is undervalued. Uh, does it have a place in a portfolio? Yes, I think it, it could have a place in a portfolio. Um, I think, in fact, I think it's, it's probably a little bit better than cash and, and could be equivalent to bonds. Even though it doesn't pay a yield, there is an implied return um, in its fair value that I track relative to the US dollar. And so it, does it belong in your portfolio at all times? No, and maybe it doesn't belong you know, at all. Um, but for those that are buying gold um, as a hedge, because it, it tends to have like a very low correlation to the S&P 500, it's not a bad idea. And it is one of the few undervalued asset classes out there today. So yes, but do I buy it because I think the world is ending? Absolutely not, because gold is useless in that environment. <laughs> it's still a hunk of metal. <laughs> exactly. And the best hunk of metal in, in the zombie apocalypse is a crowbar. <laughs> we are planning your financial future. I'm Scott Thompson. Don Fox is here from Fox Group Private Wealth Management, along with Philip Peterson, who is IG's chief investment strategist. You can find out more at donfox.net. You can call them at IG Private Wealth Management at 905-972-7420. Going to take a quick break here. We're coming back. You are listening to a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified, the guests on the program are employees of or otherwise represent the advertiser. The opinions expressed therein are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of 900 CHML. We are planning your financial future. I'm Scott Thompson. Don Fox is here from Fox Group Private Wealth Management, along with Philip Peterson, IG's chief investment strategist. You can find out more at donfox.net. You can call them at IG Private Wealth Management at 905-972-7420. The quarter in review, we're looking back. Yes, and we've come off 22, and we had to deal with equity markets down and 
fixed income markets basically going down even worse than Canadian stocks. And you, you mentioned, you called this the 100-year flood. Could you explain that a bit more, Philip? Certainly. Uh, I think it's, I call it the 100-year flood because the returns that we saw in fixed income were very extreme to the downside that I haven't seen in my career, we haven't seen in our lifetime. Um, Don, you, you and I were chatting just before saying, I think the last time we're, was somewhere in the 1800s that we might have seen it, which isn't really relevant to, to <laughs> today's environment. But right. you know, like normally a bad market in bonds is you're down 3 to 5% in a given year. But let me quickly explain what happened. Yeah, and, and I think the the hundred year flood analogy is is worthwhile. So if we go back to twenty 2020 twenty and twenty twenty one, where central banks around the world had had dropped, uh, for example, the Bank of Canada had dropped its overnight rate to zero, that's effectively a drought. You're earning nothing on bonds, so you're lending money and getting nothing in return other than the guarantee of getting your money back at some point in the future. So that's a big drought. Then they took interest rates from zero very quickly to four and a half percent right and so the increase in interest rates by that much over such a short period of time is what drives the price of bonds negative or drives right. the price of bonds down and down by a lot so if we had started from four and went to eight it wouldn't have been nearly as bad because you already have a coupon of four percent that's you know you're you're giving some of that up as interest rates go up but we started at nothing so there was nothing to support the markets when the price was falling. So you were bearing the full brunt of the drop in that price. Now, we're not there today. So is it likely that we could see a repeat of 2022? Well, no, because we're at a 4.5% overnight rate. So if we went from 4 to 8 again, it, it, we, would, we would see weaker bond markets, but nowhere near what we saw in 2022. Now, from a portfolio standpoint, is this actually healthy to have funny interest rates up a little bit so that you know those people that are investing in say balanced funds which is normally call it 60 percent equities 40 percent bonds or the pension funds are not too dissimilar to that it's nice to have some money actually earning an interest rate well absolutely and and given the the direction for inflation earning a positive interest rate so interest rates now are sitting above the the prevailing inflation rate which is what you want I want to earn a real return right. on on my money. And so this has been a positive outcome for what we just came through uh, during the, the the pandemic. And one thing you said, and again, you I listen to your podcast and sometimes I miss a week or two, but I always catch them up. It's a, it's a great podcast called The Living Markets. For any listeners, please go and check it out. It's five minutes to seven minutes long. Every week you put this together. Um, it, it must take, a, first of all, a fair bit of time to put this five minutes together um, because you do it either that or you just wing it so articulately every time perfectly. I don't know how you do that. There's there's some prep work that goes into it. And so, yeah, it, it takes a little bit of time. But thank you for the plug. I really appreciate it. No problem. But you did mention one of yours is the whole idea of big tech being potentially a safer haven. And and it was interesting because you always think of NASDAQ or the tech stocks as, oh, that's the risky stuff. And you're seeing the NASDAQ actually taking a bit of a beating. But on the same token, you're saying in your podcast how some of the bigger tech companies are actually doing quite well. Could you explain that? Yeah. And it comes back to technology has become such an integral part into our daily lives that you know it's not the 
uh, or, or certain aspects of technology companies aren't the high flyers that we might think they are. You know, it's not the dot coms of 20 years ago. Um, it, when, when I turn on my computer every day, I'm using Microsoft, for example, Microsoft Office. Uh, Microsoft collects a licensing fee for that. They're like a gym membership that you can never get rid of, but you always pay into, right? And everyone <laughs> is incorporated into this. So just as I turn on the lights, turn on the tap, you know, turn on my computer, they've become like a utility. So these tech companies have high recurring revenues, highly predictable revenue streams, high um, uh, client retention, um, very attractive margins. And they're, they can be relied upon in a way as as a utility and, and therefore do have some defensive characteristics as we've seen this year and as we've seen in the past. So, you know, you can't paint tech with the same brush. There are elements of tech companies out there that are more utility like in their nature, um, but have very attractive characteristics in terms of growth and, and profitability on top of that. And as you mentioned, they're very sticky. How do you get rid of them? Like if particularly the cloud also, all your data is backed up by certain uh, these providers. You know, you think a bank account is sticky, trying to move from one bank account to another, try to move all your data from one to another. Like you said, I love the analogy. It's a utility. But thank God we have people like yourself that are picking the ones that are considered the safe havens versus the very high flyers. So, again, this is all part of do not do this at home, folks. This is a <laughs> this is a full time job. It's interesting. I don't know if many people ever viewed tech as a utility. And nowadays, you're exactly right. That is what it's become. We are planning your financial future. I'm Scott Thompson. Don Fox is here from Fox Group Private Wealth Management, along with Philip Peterson. Philip Peterson is IG's chief investment strategist. You can find out more at donfox.net. You can call them at IG Private Wealth Management at 905-972-7420. Another quick break here. We're coming back. You are listening to a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified, the guests on the program are employees of or otherwise represent the advertiser. The opinions expressed therein are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of 900 CHML. We are planning our financial future. I'm Scott Thompson. Don Fox is here from Fox Group Private Wealth Management, along with Philip Peterson, Chief Investment Strategist for Investors Group. You can find out more at donfox.net. You can call them at IG Private Wealth Management at 905-972-7420. All right, gentlemen, our last segment here. we got to wrap it up with a big bow. Yes, and I want to touch on artificial intelligence, uh, known as AI. And you know what? You take a look at something like Microsoft. At one time, you bought a Microsoft computer, and that was it. And then they supplied software, which you put into your machine, and you downloaded it, and that was Office, as you mentioned earlier, Peter. And now they have this utility called the cloud, which everybody now taps into and throws all their information on. Who would have thought? that we would feel safe throwing all our, our very private information, running companies, and just put it into this company that's going to take care of it for us now, where we used to have certain hard backups for all this. Well, now there's the next evolution. And for any of the listeners that happen to check out 60 Minutes on the weekend, it's called artificial intelligence. And, and it's been going on for a while. But it's, it's a lot of competitiveness between Microsoft and some of the bigger players and some small players with what they can do, where Microsoft is looking at taking a lot of information off the web and getting it very quickly and can write an essay in, gosh, about five seconds. And if you want to change that to Chinese writing, you can do that or Latin or anything else, where BART is the Google one. 
And it's actually really critically thinking. In fact, even what they call hallucinating, where they're actually making up stuff when they don't know the answer. And where are your thoughts how AI could change the stock markets or the companies or, or the direction or employment? There's so many avenues on this. And of course, when you're looking at tilting, you want to have the winners on this too. Yeah, it's a great question and one that you know we're going to have to spend a lot more time on as an industry uh, and anyone that's invest investing will have to consider this because there are positive and negative implications, right? And, and it depends on what side of the table you sit on. As a company, if I can replace certain functions within my company with AI, if it can do certain things, um, the obvious one is copywriting, right? That's the one that comes to mind right away or, or coding, simple coding. Then I can just have one of these you know, chat GBT or whatever it is, do it for me and not have to pay them. Uh, that's the benefit. However, if you see too much of a disruption out there, then it's negative economically. And so, hey, I've got all these you know, chat, whatever, AI uh, functionality out there. But if I'm losing my customers because they're losing their job, then we've got a challenge, right? right. And so that's, I don't know what the outcome is. The The Economic side of me says this could be good for productivity, but bad for labor. The capitalist side of me says this would be fantastic for profitability, um, but that it could weaken demand. So a lot of unknowns, Don. Uh, we'll, we'll just have to work our way through this step by step. Yeah, and that's it is so much in the infancy, but so was the cloud at one time and, and just yeah. the technology. And there was a time where we were saying, oh, technology is going to replace all these jobs. And next thing is, what do we end up with? Is a whole lot of technology jobs. And, and a good example right here in Hamilton, at one time, Hamilton's biggest employer was Steel. And Stelco to Fasco were the two big employers. And they really, it's called a steel town for a reason. Now our, our biggest, they, because of technology, they can probably produce way more steel than they ever used to with a quarter of the people. And that's just efficiency. And hopefully AI has that same type of thing. But then like this, again, it's scary. Like, for example, a radiologist, you know, they're human. Um, and they're looking at this chart. And is there a person have cancer? Doesn't it? Are they missing anything? Break uh, a broken leg or a fracture? Sometimes it's so small. And they're looking at it so many different ways. AI in split seconds, probably at some time in the future, will be able to read that. And so there's a lot of positives. But it's again scary, and and again probably probably part of that whole apocalypse that you mentioned earlier of put your money in gold, which makes no sense at all. And finally, I like to say, and I know you're not a big fan of this, but I just want to bring this up one more time. And crypto is, it seems to you know it said okay, it's gone down so much. Actually, if you ever listen to the news on crypto, it's been going down like crazy, and it's not coming up. And I looked at. At one time, Bitcoin was around 69,000. And now it went all the way down to 20,000, now over 30,000 again. And, you know, you say, okay, well, that's awful. Look how much lost more than half your money. Well, you know, Amazon, <laughs> Shopify, you get some of these massive tech companies. We, It's almost like that's crypto. It's it's really bad. And these technology companies are, are okay. They're going to bounce back. Where do you where do you see crypto in the future? Does it have a role? Is it is it gaining any mainstream now? And maybe any decision making on your part? 
So in my view, uh, crypto does not belong in my portfolios because it doesn't earn an income. It doesn't pay a rent. It doesn't generate profits. It doesn't, you know, it, so it, it's not something that I could, could measure the value of. It's not a legitimate currency held by central banks around the world. So I don't see it as that. Will it always exist? I think it will. I think there's a fringe, there's always going to be a niche in the population that for whatever reason wants to own it as there's a niche in the population that wants to own artwork or they collect scotch or they collect running shoes, whatever it might be. That's the category that I put it in. So they will value it. I can't tell you exactly what that value should be. I have no idea what that should value should be. Uh, it's not a good inflation hedge. It's not a hedge against the U S dollar. It's not, you know, I, it doesn't correlate to anything. So therefore you can't value it. So I put it outside of an investment portfolio. Okay. And that's a great answer. And finally, the last one to leave you with is, is there any correlation between the stock markets and the Leafs getting through the last round or the first round of the playoffs? <laughs> <laughs> oh, great question. I mean, you know, it, no. <laughs> So in other words, you're saying sell the Leafs. <laughs> Given the first round matchups, I'm going to have to say sell the Leafs. <laughs> All right. There you go. We're not only planning your financial future, we're planning your playoffs as well. Uh, I'm Scott Thompson. Don Fox has been here from Fox Group Private Wealth Management, along with Philip Peterson. He is the chief investment strategist for IG. You can find out more at donfox.net. You can call them at IG Private Wealth Management, 905-972-7420. A fascinating show, gentlemen. Thanks so much for the time. Have a great week. The preceding was a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified, the guests on the program are employees of or otherwise represent the advertiser. The opinions expressed therein are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of 900 CHML.